Hey everyone, it is Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, I sit down with Trish Wood, an ex-CBC investigative journalist. If you're not familiar with Trish, you should be. Here's a bit about her, here's a bit about, here's a bit of her bio. For nearly 10 years, she was one of the hosts of the Emmy Award-winning investigative current affairs series, The Fifth Estate, spending years on the road, outworking, outthinking, and during long nights away, outdrinking the men in her world. It was a formula for success until it wasn't. Drinking exploded her life, so she committed to recovery, focused on parenting her two boys as a single mother, and came back even stronger. And a little bit more, listen to this. She was, as a television and radio trailblazer, she's renowned for chasing organized crime bosses through Tokyo, exposing crooked religious cranks, dodging drunken teens with guns at checkpoints in war-torn Burundi, and setting free innocent men. Trisha's intrepid reporting landed exclusive guests and won her fans accolades and occasionally critics. She currently runs the Trish Wood is Critical podcast. It's something that I strongly believe in because she has strong views of her own. She brings on really interesting guests. And I want to live in a world where someone can express their views and we are all tolerable, tolerable of them. I want to live in a world where people can express their views. And even if you or I don't agree with them, we hear them. And I love what Trish is doing. You can actually support Trish in what she's doing on Patreon. If you go to her website, trishwoodpodcast.com, you can support her through her Patreon. There's a link there to do that. So if you think what she's doing is valuable and bringing a voice to the world, you can support her for doing that. Really thankful that she came on. This is not her typical po- podcast that we run here, I would gather. So for her to come on and be interviewed and chat, really appreciate it. And if you are listening to this and you want to educate yourself in some area around real estate, that is something perhaps that we can help you with. We've been doing that for a little while and we run a monthly introductory training class. You can register for that class. Nick and I are there answering questions and we go through all the latest strategies we're using with real estate investors across the greater Toronto area and in the Golden Horseshoe. You can register for the next class at CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. So if you want to dive into the world of owning an asset, perhaps an income property is right for you. We believe in owning assets because it's one way we can circumvent the insane monetary policies and fiscal policies that we believe are prevalent in the Western world, actually all around the world, and especially here in Canada. So if you think an income property might be important to you because you want to own income producing assets, you can learn everything we are doing here by coming to the introductory training class at CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. That's it with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. So we are, we are live with Trish Wood, and Trish Wood has a really amazing history here in Canada because you have covered a lot of stuff. And when I look into your history, Trish, you started, it seems like, on the radio covering somebody by accident or emergency because there was a major hostage situation at the BC penitentiary. I don't know if this oh, is right or accurate or yes. not. No, and I that's how you got you into get the, that. Oh I, my God. Listen, I, I spied on you. I started stalking you online. And it seems like from that, you then went, I think, 
shortly after or at some point afterwards to the CBC, the journal, there was also a radio program as it happens. Yes. Then you were on the fifth, fifth estate for a yeah. very short time, a full decade yeah. from 1989 to 1998. Yeah. Um, and you've done all this wonderful stuff. Like, I don't even know where to start. There's a book on Iraq. What was asked of us is the yeah. title of the book. Yeah. You have different documentaries, some, some, around the false claims of the satanic ritual abuse. That was big. Pull, yeah. uh, you pulled back the curtain on Carla Hamolka. You yep. helped free an innocent man, Clayton Johnson. I did. You, you chased organized crime bosses through Tokyo. We did that, yeah. Yes, you dodged drunken <laughs> teens with guns at checkpoints in war-torn Burundi. I had yep. to look up where this country is. Yeah, it's in the yeah, middle of yeah. Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, your that latest project is a five-part document, uh, documentary, document, I can't say the word. Documentary. Docu documentary thank you series for amazon studios it's a female take on the ted bundy murders right, yeah. you describe yourself as neither left or right of center i love this yeah. a libertarian in her head but a champion of the working class at heart i yeah. love that i yeah. love that i love High that five, yeah i <laughs> love that description <laughs> so i don't you know i feel like most people in their lives have three or four moments that really yeah. kind of define them yeah. or they reflect back when you hear all of that, what stands out? Is it the first thing? Is it the fifth estate because you were there for so long? What what was a turning point? Well, I guess for me, there was a couple of things you mentioned that um, kind of underpin everything I do, even now with podcast, and that is critical thinking, right? So good journalism is based on somebody with the brain and the resources and the editorial structure to say, boy, that's really weird. That can't be true. They must be lying to us about that. And then being let loose to go and investigate it fully. And so that happened with Clayton Johnson, who was the Canadian guy who was wrongfully convicted just outside of Halifax. Poor guy who was accused of killing his wife, of um, battering her around the head when in fact she'd fall down the stairs, fallen down the stairs. It was a really big, big job to get him uh, exonerated. He had two children left behind now without a mother and without a father. But he, we, you know, we won the day. His great lawyer won the day. It was clear that he hadn't done it and he got out. So, so that was one of them. The other one, when you mentioned was satanic ritual abuse. So a journalist thinks, does it make more sense that they're alleging that thousands of babies a year are being sacrificed to a cult or that there's something else going on since we never find dead bodies, right? So we embarked on that big story for Fifth Estate. It took us months, Michelle Metivier and I, to do it. And there was a lot of pushback because like some things that are happening today, these trends in psychiatry, certainly around um, young girls who think they're trans taking uh, puberty blockers, same thing. Some are obviously gender dysphoric, but some are probably not. There are trends in psychiatry that lead people astray and satanic ritual abuse, multiple personality, all those stories that were headlines on Oprah and Geraldo all turned out to be not true. And the point of that is this, it isn't just that good journalists ask those questions and spend the time and get to the bottom of it. It's that while we're doing it, we're being accused of terrible, terrible things, right? When we were doing satanic, people were saying, you don't care about women and children. You don't believe women and children tell the truth when they disclose abuse. Far from it. That's absolutely not true. But we do believe, and good journalists must hang on to the idea, that facts will lead you home. And 
If something doesn't make sense, it probably isn't true. And so you can say, yes, I believe in gender dysphoria in young girls, but I don't think all girls have gender dysphoria. I can believe maybe there's a satanic cult somewhere in the world existing, but boy, oh boy, you know, they were finding 20, 30, 40, 100 cases at a time in various cities around North America. That makes virtually no sense. So, so that's what the good journalist does, but you frequently are doing it with headwinds. And the headwinds are people telling you you're not a good person for doing it. Or, and this is maybe even more sad, your colleagues in the mainstream media who don't have the time or resources to do that kind of work taking pot shots at you. And that's absolutely what happened in the Clayton Johnson case. We were not the most popular kids in town at all. Why in that case? Because you, you were obviously trying to uncover and free someone. So the media or mainstream or corporate media wanted you to just ignore the story. They just... It was then their interest for you not to dig into that? I don't, I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't think it's, I don't, I, I think what happens is that, um, a, you know, it's, you've heard the word narrative, 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 right? So a narrative was created by the Crown Attorney about what happened, about the way Clayton allegedly killed his wife. And uh, there were pretty powerful witnesses who were, um, supporting that narrative, even though upon closer examination, their stories fell apart. But there is a real reluctance to go against what the pervasive narrative is. And we see it now more than ever. We see it on every front right now that a narrative is set. And if you have the courage to go against it, you are a conspiracy theorist. You know, you are an anti-vaxxer. You are this, you are that. And even when it turns out you're right, let's take the Wuhan lab leak theory, for instance. Just I'll do this one because it's easy. We had. I love uh, that you think that one's easy. But basically, yeah, <laughs> all right, let's just put tee that one up. Perfect. Well, okay, so we had a guy on the show, Nicholas Wade, right? Yeah. Who's who is? I saw that. Yes. Yeah, he's yeah. just brilliant, right? The smartest guy in the room, and he lays out a very convincing case based on you know the location of the leak, the fact that the earliest cases happened right at the Wuhan lab, right up and down that subway line, that there was no geographic area between where the bats live and the Wuhan lab that it could have been jumping species that just didn't happen but the bigger issue is something called the fur and cleavage site which i can't explain because i'm not a scientist but but the gist of it is that the fur and cleavage site is something that appeared on the virus um, and can only appear like a million to one through viral manipulation it doesn't just show up naturally as the virus is moving through various animal models it has to be an artifact of lab manipulation. So that's kind of exhibit A for me. I don't need much more of that, but they're still arguing. That's cool. That's fine. But what happened with CBC and that was, you know, several months ago, they did one of their fact check smug little declarations about it saying, oh, we have determined that the lab leak theory is a no-go. And they quoted, you know, Iran and a paper that was drummed up by some of Fauci's uh, acolytes very, very early on it came out through these emails that have come, come up lately. He called a meeting when he got word that it could have been a lab leak very, very early on. And five people met over the weekend. And five days later, there was an article in 
one of the big journals saying it couldn't have been a lab leak. It had to be, you know, and, and the science in that paper does not stand up. But my, my here's my point. My point is that CBC should know better than that, right? They should know better than that. They should have gone to scientists who were worried about gain-of-function research. They should have gone to scientists who were saying, wow, Tony Funchy is funding EcoHealth Labs and they are paying gain-of-function. They do have a reason to lie, but, but they didn't. And they didn't because they have a narrative and the narrative isn't supported by out outsiders like me, I'm nobody, but Nicholas Wade and other people who have been talking about this, much of it on Fox News, unfortunately, because they really won't listen then. And in fact, a whole year has been wasted. And there ha I, what really bugs me today is that after the G7, one of the G7 countries' junior minister types said, we are not buying into the lab leak story completely yet. They're trying to turn the tables again back to natural origin to protect Tony Fauci. And here is the problem with that. The problem is that we don't know yet if a manipulated virus could have provided, had we known, could have provided an earlier therapeutic, could have provided an earlier vaccine. If we'd known how the virus was constructed, would we have known earlier how to save people? Would we have known that? But that's not what happened. A whole bunch of really powerful people circled the wagons around Tony Fauci, who I know, because they were trying to protect the fact that he'd been funding, and it's been proven, it's on documents, gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab that likely created the coronavirus we are now all dealing with. So does this come from, okay, when as an outsider of the media, I look at the media in the last 10 years, this is where I'm interested in your opinion, and, I'm, and I think, okay, technology kind of destroyed the business model of a lot of the media. Yeah. And it turned into this thing where they just need a headline to get clicks, where really they should have doubled down on investigative journalism and good journalism and put up a paywall early on that if you wanted to get access to good information, you paid for it. They didn't do that. And instead, the internet just kind of decimated the media and they had to go to salacious headlines for clicks. And that's how you sold ads. And that's what has driven the media. But now you're making me think there's actually two angles to this. There's that, but there's also a political thing where a narrative is spun by a government. And maybe it's because of relationships that the U.S. wants with China or, or another country wants. Yeah. Who knows? That's beyond me. But it seems like there's actually two things going on that the media doesn't have the funds, it seems, to do investigative journalism. So they just do these kind of head, quick headlines, a little bit of a reporting to get a click. And then there's this other side of the media where they just kind of have a narrative that they want to support and they, they question anyone who doesn't support it. So as an outsider, that's kind of what I see. I don't think you're very far wrong, but I don't think it's a money thing because honorable journalists would not report garbage okay. just because they didn't have <laughs> enough like money okay. To, okay. Right, to not report garbage. Like, I, I honestly don't get it. I, I can't explain it. Um, I know that the journalism schools are turning out people who believe being a social justice warrior and seeing the world through that lens is much more important than actual neutral fact finding. I was in a debate with somebody I realized halfway through they were pissed off that I was hitting them with facts. And I was like, I thought that's what we did here. But, you know, they, <laughs> they, don't, they don't think facts are um, things to be treasured and to drive, drive the narrative. They think that 
they, 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 they know what the narrative is. It's a social justice narrative and everything has to fit in that, whether it's factual or not. That's what's going on now. Where does this lead us then, Trish? So based there on, is it just that this is a generational thing and that you've been in the industry? I'm, you know, I'm 48 years old. I kind of look back. Sometimes I think, oh, am I just getting, turning into my parents where I look at the world and I think, oh, that's not the world I grew up in and it's going to change with or without Tom Karadza. And this is the way it is. Where do you think this all leads us? Well, I think it's a really interesting question. And obviously you're a smart guy to question it that way because I do that myself. But I do think things are different now. And I think they're different because what's happening in academia is so grotesque and so corrupted that they aren't turning out people who are critical thinkers. And without critical thinking, we are lost. My view is that, and I say this on every show, the trouble in Western democracies, primarily the United States, us and the UK, is that they don't have a working media. They don't have one, right? The BBC is as corrupt as CBC or CTV. They're totally woke. They've started a new station over there called GB and already uh, one of the very aggressive um, talking point factories is trying to pull the advertisers from GB. It's going to be really, really tough. Getting people appropriate information, it's, it's falling to podcasters, it's falling to people who are doing startups. We don't have a ton of money to do this. I mean, I keep saying, you know, Anderson Cooper has paid 10 million a year to a lot of people, right? And so those of us who are just kind of slogging through, yeah, we make a difference. But I do, here's what I do think. And I've heard this from guests. I, I hear that there is a big change coming. And the big change coming is people like you and me who are neither left or right, who are in the middle and politically homeless, who don't buy into critical race theory. They don't buy into the fact that all non-racial people are monsters who need to pay a price for the sins of their fathers from hundreds of years ago. They don't buy into that. Um, and they don't know where to turn. They're not quite libertarian, but they're not like, they don't know. But that group of people, it's kind of like if Donald Trump had not had all of the personality deficits and massive character flaws he had, I, and I think I'm describing Ron DeSantis, right? <laughs> My hero. Um, more you and know, more people here in Canada are telling me they're, he's their hero as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just so obvious. Yeah, we, but, yeah, but 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 we're all kind of moving. I can no longer tall. I'm socially a little bit left still, but I cannot tolerate what they're doing. There's stuff on the right that pisses me off too. So there's there's kind of this middle ground, and I think people are flocking to it. And I think maybe Maxine Bernier is going to be the guy. I don't know, but but it's going to be powerful. And I'm hearing that from people in the states too. My friend Jeffrey Tucker uh, feels that way because I was very very depressed, and he said, No, no, no. People are changing, you know. I I, I take this, you know, I, I kind of look around at what's happening. Personally, I want the media, you know, I've been on this, I, we were describing before we started recording, I want someone in the media to kind of look beyond some things deeper. And, and my, my angle is what's happening to the middle class here in Canada. Yeah. That we talked a, a little bit about. And sometimes I feel like the symptoms are discussed in the media. And the symptoms being, look at real estate prices. Yeah, who can afford yeah. that? Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, are you yeah. getting that there's some, there's a noise outside our window? Oh no, I don't hear it. Well, no, but what are we gonna do? Can we get rid of it? In, in post you could, but I don't, I don't think it'll be 
six bucks like it's mower than junk. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm not. Cool. I don't think we're picking it up. But your your noise reducer that I have on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gets rid of it. Oh, okay, fine, 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 fine. <laughs> okay, sorry. So, so. So go. yeah, I was just saying where I want where I I I, I kind of want someone in the media to to go into this a little bit and and sometimes I feel like where it's up to people like yourself and and myself to dive into it because one of the topics that's close to my heart is that we in this country we have a media that focuses on real estate prices yes and we say no no one can afford properties anymore and when these big companies start buying properties it gets this fervor and everybody starts kind of freaking out and i kind yeah. of agree with it but yeah, it's a symptom yeah totally but it's a symptom so i guess where my editorial i didn't i don't consider myself a journalist but where the facts don't make sense to me and this started in 2008 I didn't understand what was happening with the financial system and the great financial crisis. And it led Nick and myself down this kind of deep hole where we thought, wow, look at what happens with central banks when the central banks are able to print money freely to fund government spending, yeah. where the government doesn't have the money to spend so they introduce and bring in new money into the economy when they bring in new money into the economy so easily it inflates asset prices and the cause of the problem to me is this central banking system but the symptom is high real estate prices yeah, yeah. all our attention is on the symptom of high real estate prices and not the cause of the high real estate prices so I feel like sometimes Nick and myself are the only ones, and there's more of us and it's growing, but mm -hmm. are pointing saying, hey, the system's kind of broken. It's broken. So, and 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 it, it hurts just me personally. We were talking about how, how uh, you know, when you were younger, your parents were working, you took trips to Hawaii. When I was younger, I had, it was just our father was working as a drywaller. He was an immigrant here from Croatia, worked yeah. as a drywaller, made enough money to have a middle-class family my mom could stay home. We took the odd trip to Disney World. I mean, we didn't fly there first class. We stayed in the Days Inn, you know, outside Disney World. And but you we were, were fine staying at the Days Inn, right? We were to, oh my gosh, we were totally fine. They had yeah, a we were pool. To yeah. yeah, yeah. My brother almost died in the pool and my mom looked away and he fell in, but that's just oh. a whole other, <laughs> whole other story. <laughs> but so anyway, I just, I just sometimes look at the Canadian media and I just, I just think, where are the people digging into things? Do you, do you, is it just left? Is podcasting the last area I where this so. is going to happen? I feel so. Are I we an, so. under a fundamental change of the media for good? Well, look at how the media has approached COVID. I mean, they are the drivers of the fear that has crippled and traumatized the entire country. If you pick up, they didn't do it yesterday, first time in ages, but if you pick up the Toronto Star, they will have some big dramatic story of a kid or a young person who died of COVID, you know, they won't say that they had 63 comorbidities or they'll say that they didn't have any comorbidities, which is usually a lie um, because the death rates don't justify what they're showing. These are outlier cases that are used to scare people, right? So that's how the media has approached COVID. They bought into a narrative the narrative is that COVID is equally scary to everybody. Public health is always right. Support them no matter what they say. The people who gather to protest it are either white supremacists or hoaxers. That's what the media is doing. They're not doing the big investigative work. And here's the tragedy of COVID and the media. 
I'm doing a show. It's actually recorded. I'm going to release it tonight. Really good journalist, journalist named Julius Ruchel, uh, took the data and proved what I've known and others have known all along. And that is this. The big COVID deaths are primarily an institutional problem, right? They happen in long-term care, which is funded mostly and governed by the government. They happen in hospitals, iatrogenic infection. That's where people get infected, and they happen in prisons. Three places run by the government. That's where the majority of the outbreak deaths are. Government, government, government. It's their problem. It's their fault. They didn't lock down the long-term care centers. All they had to do was lock the doors, keep the staff in for six to eight weeks while the thing runs its, you know, its course through the general population who aren't so sick, but they wouldn't do that. And instead of, and because they haven't done that, we've had outbreak after outbreak after outbreak while we stay locked down, healthy people stay locked down while sick people keep on dying. This is their shame. And if a solid, Julius Rochelle is a solid journalist, but he supports himself as a website, he's doing the work they should be doing. Everything they do is out of context. I'll give you an example. Bonnie Henry, who is the um, medical officer of health in BC, did a big speech about a baby who died of COVID, right? And it was a big national story and everybody was terrified. Hold your children a little tighter tonight. It turns out that that baby was a patient in one of the hospitals that cares for the province's sickest. So he or she would have had multiple, multiple comorbidities. Um, the number of babies who die of COVID, I think at that point was like maybe two or three. And yet that was played up as if this wave of infant deaths was about to sweep across the country in order to keep us all scared and panicked and following their not working public health rules. And the reason I know that's true is because we had a woman on our show named Laura Dodsworth. She wrote a book about the UK. They hired behavioral scientists to teach the politicians running the COVID campaign how to scare people into compliance. They didn't teach them how to unscare them. And now we have got a whole over there for sure here for sure we have whole countries of people who are so afraid of covid their lives will never be normal again they have traumatized us and they've traumatized us on a lot of stuff that isn't true and isn't borne out by the data this is an institutional issue and everything else they're doing is kind of a deflection right it's sort of i now think they keep the lockdowns going because they don't want us to start looking at the damage they've caused i'm an addict they're my tribe. I'm proud of people who recover. I'm proud to say it. More addicts have died in BC of COVID or of, of, uh, of overdose than they have of COVID. I mean, that, you can't even take that on. And why is that? Why is that happening? What's the practicality of that? There are no open 12-step meetings for people to go to. You want to go to a meeting? You can Zoom it, baby. Like the whole thing about addiction recovery is um, fellowship. We need, as human beings, we need fellowship. If we don't get it, we die, right? Last week, one of the children's hospitals set out a red alert. We can't keep them out of school. We got to go back to normal. We can't keep them in masks, right? Completely ignored by the science table.
they put out their thing about going back to school after Ford said he wasn't going to send anybody back to school. So they're safe. They can both appease the teachers union and the public by coming out late with an edict that kids should go back to school, right? All of this collateral damage, in my view, is as a result of them being unable to get the institutional infections under control. And, and that's and what media should be doing, and they're not doing it. Yeah, so am I naive to think, so then you just answered it, I was going to ask, am I naive to think that the media should be holding our government to a higher standard here? And you're, you're saying, yeah, they, they should be. So yeah, I, there's a whole bunch of us that are just perplexed. And I'm not trying, I think sometimes when you ask these questions, people will think you're some kind of denier like you're suggesting. Yeah. And it's like, no, this is a real thing. But can we ask better questions? How does somebody, you mentioned earlier, when you're in the media and you're an investigative journalist, there's an editorial structure mm -hmm. that you, you have to follow. I've yeah. never heard that before. What, what, what is that thinking? What, what is an editorial structure? I don't understand. Well, a good editorial structure is usually one that exists between a team. And I had a, an excellent, excellent team at the Fifth Estate who held me in check. They didn't let me go off on wild tangents. I held them in check. Um, research is hard, you know, it's hard to get documents, it's hard to, in the Clayton Johnson case, we were arguing his head injury, which was kind of like, a, it was a bilateral skull fracture, right? And, and how you interpreted the bilateral skull fracture would tell you if he, if she, his wife, received it by getting a blow on the head, or by falling down the stairs and wedging her head on the way. So it was really important. So we had to kind of get up to speed on the neurology of head injuries, right? And, and try to figure out if the coroners, who, some of whom had different opinions about how she died were correct. We had to do that. We had to make a judgment about that. That's hard. And so that's kind of the structure of the team that we work together to get at the truth. We check each other. We usually have some someone on up, up high who checks in on us every once in a while, but it's, it's really hard work. In the end, we got that one right. And I say about, her name is Janice Johnson, I say about her that her head had more attention, her wounds, head wounds, had more attention than JFK's did. I think in the end there were like 15 pathologists who weighed in on her cause of death. But he was acquitted and he got money, he got like 8 million bucks or something from the government. Yeah, awesome. Congratulations on that. Yeah, he should And, and yeah. when someone higher up, you mentioned there briefly, looks in on you, who is that? That's the producer of the show? Like, I'm always wondering in the media, like, does someone get a tap on the shoulder and say, hey, don't say this, Trish, say this, Trish? Or, or are you free really to do as you please. I was free and mostly. Uh, and I would say, just so you understand, I, I understand what you're getting at. I could not do the reporting I do now at the CBC. I did the reporting I do now at the CBC 25, 30 years ago. I did it. I was a heretic. I was a medical and scientific heretic covering HIV and AIDS back. So, in the day. so what changed then? What, why you were able to do that 25 years ago? What's they the transition? Me. What's the transition? Well, it's a transition that all media has done, right? Partly it's what they're taught in journalism school. Partly it is this massive social justice tent that hangs over industries, many industries, the big virtue signal. 
Um, they feel they're being good people. I also think it's about money, as you said. I think, you know, clickbait headlines make careers. And so that's easier to do than actually doing doing the work. So um, I, I think that's it. I mean, okay. I... Uh, the stuff that I was doing for As It Happens on Fauci and AIDS was really, really out there. I mean, uh, we were doing... You were covering Fauci back then? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I was covering... And I, yeah, and I did with him a big beat-em-up interview, which I'm going to talk about soon in one of my shows, but I'll tell you. And it's kind of what he's doing now. I, I was very worried when I heard that he was taking over um, the... Um, the uh, the sort the of lead. The, the lead, I guess, is the lead with COVID. Uh, and although he didn't do it around the world, he kind of is doing it around the world, right? Everybody looks up to him. But when I was when I was um, covering AIDS, I made very good friends with a guy named Michael Callan, who uh, was a person with AIDS, longest living person with AIDS. We became buddies, and he had gone to see Tony Fauci to say, "My clinician, Joe Sonneband." believes that Bactrim, which I think is a sulfa drug, really simple, uh, can help gay men not die of pneumocystis carini pneumonia. Use it as a prophylax, was what, like as a early on. And Fauci would never do it. And it turned out it was fantastic, right? But Fauci would never do it. Michael Callan went to see Fauci to beg him to put out an alert to doctors saying, use Bactrim. And I went to see Fauci. And did an interview with him. This was for Fifth Estate. Later, we were doing a different story. And he and I had a pretty big dust-up about it. And all. And at that point, we knew that in the time period between Michael Callan going to see him and it finally, finally, finally being approved for that purpose, which took two long years, 17,000 people had died of um, PCP pneumonia who could have benefited from this, right? I went to see Fauci. He was very smug, very defensive, uh, demanding that all... It was quite interesting considering what's happening today with the vaccine. He wanted longitudinal studies that went on forever with a placebo, double-blind controlled study before to prove it, you know? And sometimes when you're a clinician dealing with a deadly disease and you find something that works, there's no time to do and it's harmless right there's no time to do what's normally done what's interesting about the vaccines not an anti-vaxxer but they did not go through the normal trial purposes so he seems to have this is maybe fauci's downfall he seems to have a high high standard for testing therapeutics and a different standard for releasing vaccines Interesting. In your, so in, in your life, what drove, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but we recently had one of our clients, uh, Joe Gluby on here talking about his battle with alcohol. And uh, he went through it a lot. He went through it a lot. He shared his story. So I'm interested. Do you feel it was your your role in the media that drove you to alcohol? Is alcoholism, I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but is, is, is it just a result of you constantly battling different things that drove you there? Um, well, and again, a, I don't know if I'm asking too personal a question no, no, or not, fine. but I just didn't you know if it was anything. the role. Is it the role? You know, because you're always like, I don't want to say fighting because I feel like the fight is good. 
Yeah. <laughs> but you're always kind of like, you know, battling different issues. Yeah. And I just wonder if sometimes you need a release. Yeah. And is that what turned you to alcohol? And how did you come out of it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the romantic answer is to say, yes, I was a hard judge, you know, right? Like I was, me and Hemingway, we like, um, but the fact of the matter is I was probably an alcoholic when I was 13. You know, I had my first blackout drunk when I was 13. My parents went away for the weekend. I drank my mother's rye. Like, can you imagine? Horrifying. I can't even stand this. I can't stand this. I don't think I could handle rye today. 48. Yeah, so at 13 to drink. Yeah. So, and, and it kind of stayed with me through my whole, I mean, it certainly worsened when I was working because I was on the road a lot and people in alcohol, or in, in alcoholism, people in journalism tend to drink <laughs> a lot on the road. So it got, it got worse as I got older, but it's also a progressive disease. It does get worse as you get older if it's left untreated. And it, here's the interesting thing about me, and maybe your listeners will get something out of this. Um, my father was a terrible alcoholic and died of alcoholism. And I grew up watching a real shit show and said, I'll never be like that. You know, we all do. And so I didn't think that what was wrong with me was alcoholism. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. And then one day I had kind of a denouement. My life came crashing down and um, I had to really, really look at myself. And two things were at play. One was that I was an alcoholic and needed treatment. So I went to a 12-step program that saved me, the ones that aren't open now, those ones. <laughs> and I also realized I was living my life for external recognition. So when you're on TV and you can go into Holt Renfrew and they circle the wagons because they want you as a client, right? That's not healthy stuff. And I began to live for that. And in fact, so live for that, that I was unable to see my own worth outside of being a hotshot journalist, right? So those two things happened at the same time. And I just kind of, I found myself, you know, broke and unhappy and pregnant and alone and had to really pull myself up by my bootstraps. And uh, those circumstances made me do that spiritually. I'd been always very kind of dismissive of that stuff, right? And I came to realize that if I was gonna survive, I had to A, quit drinking and B, sort out what my worth was as a person and as a woman. And I think women are very, really vulnerable to that, you know? Because because it's 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 challenging to establish some worth to yourself that is that why is that why you're saying uh, yes. women and women are have it it's challenging for women because you're trying to establish some self-worth that you're having trouble identifying well yes and of course you know how we look is a big deal in the world too you mm -hmm. know so that's all part of the external the external yeah, got life it. that we got lead, it. right it's uh you know we like i remember a, a man probably won't ever get this but but there but when you're a woman you have like you live a different experience than men do right and we have to acknowledge that it's just different and one thing that i noticed and all women will say they notice is that when you i always looked pretty good until i was about like 50 and and drew attention right that stops at about 45 and 50. 
when you can walk down the street and nobody is noticing, nobody looks, nobody whistles, no double takes, there's like just dead silence, <laughs> right? Got it. Okay. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Got it's it. yeah. I've never heard it. I've never heard it described like that. Got it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Women and all women experience that. Yeah, so, so we do like we bitch about externals. And they're not good for us, but also when some of them slip away, we kind of miss that attention too. <laughs> True. And I, so I can't, I can't let you, I got to tackle some of these. What the heck were you doing chased by organized crime bosses through Tokyo? There's two or three. I need to know more detail here. <laughs> what was going on? What were you doing? Well, I was being stupid, obviously, but that's... <laughs> Right? Yeah, okay, maybe. But you survived. That. But was I, that was that was that some journalism thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't do that stuff now. I didn't know I, if you had an alter life that you were doing some kind of drug trading in Tokyo or something. Yeah, no, I yeah, like I just wanted to be really good. And I was the tough girl on the show. I was the Mike Wallace on the show, right? And so proving that over and over again was really important. And and so when you're trying to prove that, um, you become fearless. So that story, which I don't remember all that well, was about illegal drift net fishing off the coast of like maybe Japan or something like that. And it was being run by the Japanese mafia who are called Yakuza. And we had a tip that their office was somewhere. And we did this, I mean, they don't speak English, right? It's like stupid, it's theater. We walked in rolling, right? So there's a cameraman behind me, Sound man there, they got my back. I know I'm good. There's some poor guy sitting at a desk, you know, up to no good. Um, and we tried to engage him, you know, in conversation. And of course he didn't engage. And that was sort of it, yeah. <laughs> Holy smokes. Uh, I can't believe you walk in with the camera rolling in those kind of situations. Okay, one, one other one. What do you remember about the the the, the Burundi? I don't even know if I'm saying the name Burundi. of the country. Burundi. Yeah, what, well, that, what, that what were you was doing bad. at some... Yeah, so we were, that was the year that the, um, the kind of uh, Holocaust in Rwanda ended, right? So we were on our way to Kigali, and uh, where the Holocaust there had just ended, and we were reporting there, and um, everybody was really traumatized. And um, Bujumbura is the city, I believe, and Burundi is the country. And we flew into Bujumbura because somebody in CBC travel didn't know there was a civil war going on there. So we got our, we met our crew from the BBC and drove, we were driving from Bujumbura to Kigali along these roads in Africa. And um, there were checkpoints, and this is common in these places. There were checkpoints of, young, this is child soldiers, right? young, young boys, drunk, quite drunk, uh, with weaponry and significant weaponry, you know, fast firing, whatever they're called, AK, whatever. Here's Trish from Canada going, going into this environment. <laughs> I know, I know. It's in my Armani suit. I mean, it was quite silly. But, from Holt but, Renfrew, from Holt Renfrew. From Holt Renfrew. <laughs> but, but, but what was important about it is that Yes, I was being, you know, courageous and, and maybe a bit silly, but, but the boys, these boys were susceptible to maternal power. So going up to them and saying, you know, 
you don't want to be shooting us. Just We're just going through, worked, and they would, you know, stand down, and they realized we were no threat or harm, and on we would drive, but that was sort of the day. The bigger story from that event is when we were, I'd, we'd been there for 10 days, everybody was exhausted, there were bullet holes in the hotel wall, and We'd been drinking a lot of scotch to forget where we were. And we were filthy. For some, I don't know why we couldn't bathe. We weren't bathing. And uh, I went to the airport to catch my flight home. And the airport in Kigali is too short for the big commercial jetliners, like Sabina, which was our airline. So we were stuck there. They said, you're going to be here for a couple of days. You know, I'm like, great. I just want to go home. And I was supposed to be going to Kenya, right? That's where you catch the big planes to Europe. So instead of doing that, I walked down to the tarmac and there was a Care Canada twin engine Cessna, Comanche maybe of some sort. And I kind of did this like hitchhiking, right? And the guy said, yeah, yeah. So in I go, didn't know this guy. And off we fly over the African treetops you know, too. And we had to stop in Entebbe first because Entebbe has the best duty-free in all of Africa. So I got in the plane and he said, we have to stop at Entebbe first for duty-free. I said, that's my plan. So we stop, he lands, pick up his booze or whatever, and then off we go to Nairobi for me to catch my flight home. And I will say this now, I was flying Air France back to London and um, where I was going to stay for a few days. And I bumped up to first class, which cost a fortune. But it was so worth it, right? Like when you're kind of smelly and like I just You deserved wanted... it at that point. Yeah, yeah I wanted like girl stuff. It. You had yeah. earned it. <laughs> yeah, I wanted girl stuff. I wanted perfume. I wanted, you know, like all that stuff, right? And, and so it all ended well. But look, I would never do those things. I'm afraid to fly now. <laughs> you can't get in a plane with some. I feel like you've lived a life that you don't. You can't be afraid to fly now. Everything that you've been through, you're not allowed to be afraid to fly. I will tell you. You know, I want to ask you a couple more things, and then we're going to kind of kind of wrap up. I will tell you that it is great to have voices like yours with your experience in history, doing the podcast that you're doing now, getting different messages that you feel is important. I don't feel like podcasts can be shut down easily. I feel like it's a last bastion of free speech almost. Yeah. So for you to do what you're doing and sharing the history that you have. I mean, thank you. Uh, even if someone listens to you and does not agree, if they don't even agree, we need voices like yours, Trish. Yeah, we need you. voices like yours. You bring a real perspective that is missing. So, you know, just, just while I have that at the top of mind, thank you for, for doing this. How do you get to the point where you describe yourself a libertarian? It, um, it, it's quoted from your website, a libertarian in her head, but a champion of the working class at heart. What, what does that mean to you? Or do you always describe yourself like that? Or is that something no, that's, that's new? new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I figured it would be. How do you get to that point? What, what, what has changed? Well, I think the left is batshit right now. That's the gist of it. I mean, I can't, I, I think there's a level of cruelty there. I think that um, they don't support working people at all. Um, I feel that when America was hollowed out and the factories were hollowed out and the jobs were sent overseas on McKinsey's advice, I hate McKinsey, they're really on my shit list, um, those people were left um, behind to die, right? That's who's doing 
fentanyl in Appalachia, right? People who would have been, and black people too, who worked in those factories. I mean, it's, it's terrible. And the left left them to die and have sided now with multinational corporations because they virtue signal on critical race theory and woke narratives, right? So, so I can't ally myself with a group that does not care you know, who, who when people say we have no jobs, they say learn to code. That doesn't work for me. So you're, you're, you must have still some colleagues in the industry, have left the industry. Are you, are, you, are you getting support for what you're doing now? Sneakily. <laughs> yeah, okay. So nobody wants to go on record. But well, no, and I would not say that there is a, I wouldn't say there's a groundswell of support. No, there, it, there is a groundswell of support from people who've been quiet. But in my business, no, I, I fear for the business. I don't know. You asked earlier what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen to the business. It's not, what they're doing now is not sustainable. It is not sustainable. They can't, their people are peeling off. Tucker Carlson has nearly four million listeners now. He had five before the election. He'll get them back, right? So Why that's a signal. That's a signal to you that people are kind of losing faith in some of the narrative that they're hearing from from more mainstream media. Yeah, absolutely, a thousand. And he speaks truth bravely. You know, he gets some stuff wrong. I don't agree with everything he says, but he's right about many things, and he says things that the mainstream media will not talk about. What is it, what do you feel Canadians should do who um, want to support some of these, you know, a new platform like yours? Is it just sharing the message? Like, how do we kind of spread the message of, of, of what independent thinkers like yourself are doing? Is it just kind of share, sharing it? I feel like, I feel like sometimes, you know, in our business, I feel like, why doesn't everybody look at the central banks? And realize that the the hollowing out of the middle class, some of what you're describing with shipping over the jobs, a lot of it is because of the monetary policy and the way the economic system is structured. But then I think, you know what? Everyone's busy. They have a family. They got to pay the rent. They got to pay the mortgage. Yeah. They're not going to stand up and go to the Bank of Canada with me and start pointing at the front door of the Bank of Canada and saying, you're destroying the middle class. <laughs> you know, no one's going to do that. They have a life to live. So, um, well, and I now guess some... we're looking at UBI, right? I mean, the kids in my family are all for UBI, which I think it will just destroy us. I, I, and I agree. And then part of this is where I get into it with a lot of my friends as well. Part of me is like, you know what? Fine, let's do it. As long as somebody takes UBI and immediately buys assets, buy some Bitcoin yeah. if that's your thing, yeah. like Jesse Berger has been talking, buy some rental properties if that's your thing, even though I was describing earlier, I know some of us will be vilified for owning assets. As long as you take the UBI and before it destroys the economy, push it into assets, I'm like, okay, if that's the way, then that's the way. But, uh, but I agree with you. It's not a path that's sustainable at all. So I, I guess- People I, are being destroyed, not just financially, but as a community, and as a people, we have lost our ability to live in fellowship with one another. That has been downgraded. The fact that public health felt that we could live for a year on our Pelotons and our Netflix and our Uber Eats and not speak and let grandma die alone, those things tell me that there's something very very wrong. We cannot survive that way, regardless of what we do financially. And UBI 
in my view, is only going to make that worse unless people are enlightened enough to understand that that is not permission to stay home and paint pictures, right? You've got to, and I don't, I, I think people are so used to living this way now that it may be too late. I mean, I do fear oh, geez. that. Well, look at the, you know, the in the United Kingdom right now, Boris is maybe going to mandate it that if people want to work from home, they can. That's what he's saying. Nobody has to go back to the office, right? And a lot of the things we've seen, even at the New York Times, when there was that big fight about Tom Cotton's ad and Barry Weiss quit and stuff, part of that was because everybody was working from home. Don't forget that. So the kerfuffle was that you're not seeing your workmate at the coffee machine where you go, oh, he's not such a bad guy, you know, which is what happens when we see each other, right? We don't see each other. So things fester, things grow, things become corrupted. Working at home will be the end of us, I think. Oh, um, Do you want me to say something positive? No, no, no. It is, <laughs> I, I think the positive out of this is that there are ways to hear different points of view. And that although things, I think sometimes out of darkness comes some light. I know that yes. sounds crazy, no, but maybe we're going through a four or five year cycle. Maybe yeah. we're going through a cycle. And at the end of this, you know, we, I, I can't remember if we were recording when you said this or not, that there are some people telling you that there are other people who are frustrated like you, Trish, yes. who yes. are sharing the message. Maybe out of this comes something beautiful. And yes. I, you know, I know we can support you. I think you're on the Patreon platform, yes, you know, like maybe you. we are entering a world where we can support independent voices and everybody can create an income stream where they don't need a corporate structure and you don't need a big narrative. So maybe, you know, maybe we have to rip things down to build them. You know, I don't want to say that. No, that sounded, I, I just thought of myself of that, that, you know, that build back better slogan that yeah, I see. Don't I, I say just, it. No, I don't, <laughs> don't say no, it. No. Yeah. I just caught yeah. myself. I'm like, Whoa, don't want, don't want to say that. But well, uh, we can say our own build back better and have it mean something else, you know, yeah, exactly. something completely not what they're saying, but we're saying that it means something else for us. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, and I think that's really important. And I also appreciate what you said about Patreon. People, there are so many podcasts on the air right now, hundreds of thousands of them coming on every month. And you have to pick the one that meets your needs and you have to support that podcast. You have to go. I put a PayPal button on because I know some people hate Patreon, even though Patreon gives a uh, steady stream of income. But you've People have got to understand that if you're getting something for free, it's not worth getting. And they've got to start paying for people like me and all the other people, Brett Weinstein and all the other great podcasts, so that we can make a living doing what for me is now a seven day a week job, right? I don't take breaks. I took two days off to go away with my husband and I've been doing this for a year, seven days a week. So the people who are listening to me and other people, you've got to get the habit that in your new world faced by corrupt politicians and corrupt media you have to pay for information that's going to save you you have to pay for it and, and so we'll, we'll we'll wrap here but i bet that you are working hard right now on this but there's some purpose behind it to you which is giving you some energy and you do need to take some breaks trish so take care of yourself but i <laughs> yeah. bet the purpose that you have behind this now is feeding you in a positive way so that's cool yeah, it is mostly. Yes, it is. Yes, it, it is. And it, it allows me to 
have power over my own life, which is what you're doing. I think that's really smart. I think this wasn't in the record, but I think it's really important for young people. My best advice, listen to him, learn how to trade on the market, become a retail trader, learn that, learn Bitcoin and learn um, real estate. It's really, really important because unless you're in banking or finance, you're not going to make enough money to buy a fucking house. That's not going to happen. You got to make your own money. Right. I have two children, you know, I have a 19 year old and a 15 year old and I just look at them and I thought that, yeah, they need, uh, they need to understand money in a different way than I was told yeah. or educated about money. So thanks for saying that Trish. So yeah. the, the podcast is Trish Wood is critical. The yeah. URL is trishwoodpodcast.com yeah. on Twitter. Trish is, a, is at wood reporting. And um, if you, you'll have a lot of fun following Trish on Twitter because you do not hold back. So <laughs> at Wood Reporting, um, you engage with people, I find. Um, so yeah, Trish, thanks for doing this. You do not know us very well. And I know this was a, kind of a, an introduction, I think, through Jesse Berger in some capacity. Yeah, so I just want to thank, yeah. And I want to thank you for doing this. Really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Keep doing what you're doing and know that there's people out here who think we need voices like yours out there. And again, if anyone's listening to this, whether you agree or agree, I want to live in a world where different voices can share what they believe. And we can all think critically, like you say, Trish, about the information. I love that. Yeah, it's so, good, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. Yes. And I would also just say for your, anybody listening to that, your what you're doing is really important. And I'm going to hook my kids up to some of your podcasts so that they can learn these things because they're trapped. Right. You've got to you've got to go and make your own money and be in charge of your own life. You can't wait because the corporations don't care about us anymore. They don't. They don't care. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Trish. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Okay. OK, bye. Hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Trish. You can find out more about her and follow her on Twitter. All the links are there at trishwoodpodcast.com. So if you want to get to her podcast, it's linked off there. If you want to support her on Patreon, you can go there. Her Twitter links are there too. That's trishwoodpodcast.com. I want to thank her again for doing this. Had a blast chatting with her. And if you want some real estate investing information because you think an income property might be something you want to get into for yourself and your family, you can find out what we are doing here at Rockstar by visiting Canadian Real Estate training.com. That's www.canadianrealestatetraining.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.